Thank you for listening to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast, a fortnightly cast intended to shed light on the fascinating world of metabolic medicine through interviews with researchers in the field. Episodes discuss recent papers in the journal, allowing authors to give the stories behind their work, elaborate on interesting findings and share their passion for the specialty. There are already over 20 episodes to listen to via your preferred podcasting site, so be sure to follow us to never miss an episode, but not before listening to the latest episode on emergency protocols in IMD. Welcome to the JIMD podcast. Today we're discussing the emergencyprotocol.net website. This collaboration between a number of clinicians and supported by MetabURN has been something of a passion project for the journal's education editor, Dr. Terry Dirks, and he joins me to explain just what the site is all about. Alongside Terry, I have three other guests. One is the IT mind that makes it all possible, and he's also a parent of two children with GSD3. It's Sebastian Tebukost, and we have Enrique Landolino Contreras and Marta D'Agosta, parents of Nina, a little girl with a glycogen storage disorder whose tale was told in an editorial published early last year. Terry, Sebastian, Marta and Enrique, thank you all for joining me. Thank you, James, for the initiative for this podcast. Yes, thanks for having us. Thank you so much for the invitation, James. Now, before we start talking about the website, I wanted to take a brief moment to congratulate uh, Marta and Enrique on their editorial from May 2020, View from the Inside, Nina, Glycogen Storage Disease Warrior. It was one of our most clicked through articles of 2020 on social media, and it's an incredibly honest and really emotive account of discovering your child has a rare disease and then working to get them the best treatment. It, it's a fabulous piece to read, and I'd urge everyone listening to check it out. H how is Nina doing? Well, first of all, let me just thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to record this podcast. And let me also thank the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease for giving us the opportunity to publish the editorial. Uh, now, how is Nina? Uh, she's doing fine. Uh, she's pretty good, actually. She's, she's active. She's thriving. She's a happy kid nowadays. Her health condition have been stable so far, and I believe the, the only exception are given by the little emergency she might have um, when going through illnesses like gastroenterites, so when she cannot absorb food, or when she has gross birth. So that's when she experiences episodes of hypoglycemia. For the rest, I think she she's doing pretty well. Well, I've only seen pictures of her, but she looks gorgeous. <laughs> Obviously, we're, we're here to talk about emergencyprotocol.net and the, the recent paper that re reported in retrospective single centre study on the use of generic emergency protocol for IMD patients. I suppose it'd be best to begin at the beginning. Um, what is emergencyprotocol.net? Well, the, the website emergencyprotocol.net is a website uh, created to generate up-to-date personalized emergency letters for patients with liver glycogen storage diseases and fatty acid oxidation disorders. And we had multiple reasons uh, for this initiative, which was part of a longer existing process, so to say. And it has to deal with the fact that patients are regulating and monitoring their glucose concentrations at home with a strict dietary management. And for most of these families uh, with glycogen storage diseases, self-management is fundamental. And the self-management is also important in emergency situations, or perhaps even better, to prevent these emergencies. 
This is also true for the patients with fatty acid oxidation disorders and their families. And when they become sick, for instance, with fever or vomiting, the families usually take care of the first emergency measures starting at home. When they need to be admitted in the hospital, the first healthcare professionals in line usually are not the metabolic specialists and the readers of the Journal of Narrative Metabolic Disease. So it's important that everybody under these circumstances feels supported by good information and possibilities for good communication. And these emergency letters, they describe what the families can do at home to prevent metabolic emergencies, which professionals can be contacted directly by them, what local healthcare providers can do during the first assessment and management, and how the metabolic center can be contacted directly thereafter. I think what we eventually created with emergencyprotocol.net is, is a website uh, where you can uh, quickly generate an emergency protocol. We really wanted to make it uh, available for everybody, uh, so with no restrictions or registration or any impediments so you can quickly go there and uh, generate a protocol when you are in need and of course i have a different point of view than terry we, we i'm coming from the patient uh, side so normally you have a very update uh, protocol but if your kids are growing up that can be outdated pretty quickly so it is great that uh, if you didn't have that up to date you can quickly go there and make it when you are in need and that is, I think, an, uh, one of the achievements of the emergencyprotocol.net. It's obviously a relief for clinicians as well as parents, because there's nothing worse than working in an emergency department and being presented with a young patient with a diagnosis you can barely pronounce, let alone have heard of. So um, sure it's very well received. Yeah. It, I mean, it's obviously a great idea. Within the UK, we have some generic plans available on the British Inherited Metabolic Disease Group website that are often printed out and given to families. When you do things like this, how can you tell if what you're doing actually works? Well, we have evaluated the use of our emergency protocol in our center for uh, the last uh, five years. And that was part also of the, the manuscript. I found it very interesting that in the five years of using this protocol, um, hypoglycemias below 3.9 millimoles per liter were reported in only a minority of the hospital admissions. And hypoglycemia was in particular uncommon for patients with ketotic GSTs and for the older patients with uh, disorders of fatty acid oxidation. And moreover, we did not see severe symptoms and signs such as coma or convulsions. So I think this shows that it can work. But now, of course, the challenge is how to translate this uh, towards the public website and the implementation of the protocol in the individual metabolic centers, because obviously the, the local situation can vary uh, between centers, but also uh, between countries. So that's the next step we need to take. And obviously, one way you're looking at it working is the sort of decreased presentations, is there a risk that it encourages overtreatment, do you think? That's that's a very relevant uh, point. I think there is a risk of uh, overtreatment uh, as well. If you would be able to monitor the, the data from a large group of patients more closely, you can also compare disease categories. But then you can also compare the individual patients within the disease category. If, for instance, there would be a patient with AMCA deficiency who is admitted several times, it would become clear that 
at least in our center, it is very uncommon that MCAT deficient patients are admitted multiple times. So by measuring, you would see in which patients the situation is different than uh, compared to the cohort as a whole. But it could also indicate that perhaps we are overtreating or that we are too careful. The downside of that is that we are talking about prevention. So there is not a lot of room in between where we can wait until hypoglycemias or metabolic decompensations occur. So that's the, well, the all-time challenge that we face when instructing the parents and when they have an intercurrent illness. Yeah, you have to uh, also get a bit experienced with that as a parent. When, when your kids are growing up, at the start you don't know really well when, uh, when to go to the hospital. So you tend to be a bit more carefully and go there quickly. But actually the great thing about the emergency protocol is that it gives you uh, some guidelines for what you can do at home. And also when you shouldn't uh, stay at home and go to the go to the hospital before it gets really dangerous. And that helps you in feeling a bit more secure when you are treating your kid at home and know what to, what to watch for. In the end, after some years, you get more experienced in it. But, uh, but the emergency protocol helps you getting uh, experience in it and maybe do a bit more at home than you would normally do. Especially in these days, I think the, you don't want to go to the hospital too quickly. At least in Holland, it is still uh, pretty full of, of COVID patients. So that can be a consideration too. Well, it, I mean, it's certainly a fine line to tread between empowering families and, and keeping them away when they should be coming in. Uh, Marta and, and Enrique, obviously, you're also parents of a child with a GSD. I wonder what the kind of the reality of this has been for you and also within the community which you're so active within. I wonder how well these have been received. For us, there has been a, a big difference and a big improvement before and after having the, the emergency letter. Uh, when Nina was a, a little baby, uh, she was uh, she was quite unstable, and we had several emergencies. Um, we even had an emergency before she got the diagnosis, so we had no idea what was going on. And we still think that one of the reasons why Nina is alive is because uh, Marta was breastfeeding her upon demand, so that was helping to keep her blood sugars uh, more stable. But even after we got the diagnosis, the the first emergencies they were very difficult to to manage because there was no clarity on the infusion rate of the dextrose 10%, for instance, and there were a lot of things that had to be fine-tuned. And then, well, we were very lucky because we we had the chance to travel to the University Medical Center of Groningen in the Netherlands to be under the supervision of Dr. Dirks for an off-label treatment with empagliflozin, which went quite well, which we described in the in the editorial. And then uh, during that hospital stay, we had the chance to, to sit down with Dr. Dirks to do the emergency protocol together. He explained us uh, very kindly everything related to, to the production of the letter and to how it should be used. And then when we left Groningen, we had the emergency letter with us and it was extremely useful because after some time after that, we had to move to, to Madrid and very little time after moving to Madrid, uh, we actually had an emergency and, and we had to run to a hospital where they didn't know Nina. 
but we were lucky to have the emergency letter because actually we, we presented it in the emergency room and we could really feel that the doctor was was reassured, you know, that, that he could see everything in written. I mean, we were also informing him about everything, but the fact that he could see the letter, I think it was very reassuring for him. And overall, I think it establishes like a very good basis for, for a smooth dialogue between the patients and the healthcare professionals, and it gives clarity, calmness, a safe framework, even if, if Nina was not an, an unknown patient for them, no. So it helps a lot to have a very good management of the of the emergency, also to avoid potential mistakes, because you can see, for instance, that glucagon or lactatoringen are contraindicated for GSD patients. So you avoid that. And it also explains how to manage things at home, which uh, as it has already been said, no, in, in COVID-19 times, this is uh, very important also to avoid potential hospital acquired infections so it, it has a, a lot of a lot of a lot of advantages and it has been very useful for us really yeah and also i mean and all the families around the world that are benefiting from it now uh, they are also very grateful uh, because there has been a very good reception of the, of the website of the emergency letter it's in different languages, so it's accessible to to a lot of people. We know that hundreds of, of patients and families have already produced their own letter, that they have used it. We have done some webinars about it, and also as a member of the Spanish Association for GSD Patients, we we did a virtual conference with Dr. Dirks, and, and everything was explained, so the, the patients were, were very happy. Uh, so in that regard, uh, it has also been amazing how it has benefited uh, so many people around the world, no? from different countries and cultures and, and languages. And yeah, that's been very important as well. But it's also an invitation to the uh, metabolic centers in Europe and beyond to reach out to us via the website and to have their contact details included because it is a wonderful way of, of sharing this part of the care with your patients, but, but also uh, with the local healthcare providers. And prevention here and good communication is the key. And we created this website uh, for general use. So not only for our center, I think that's the, the major advantage of it. And we were extremely happy uh, that we could collaborate with a lot of patient representatives and, and colleagues from, from multiple centers um, in a collaboration that was uh, coordinated uh, through Metap ERM funding that we gained. And um, Terry, obviously Enrique mentioned there that about hundreds of families uh, using the site already. I think I've seen some data you've shared on social media about the number of letters that you've, have been made to date. You're not someone to rest on your laurels. So what are you and Sebastian planning to do with the site next? As per the 6th of May, we had in total already 476 emergency letters generated in 10 different languages. And together with uh, Hanka Decker, the director of the Dutch uh, Metabolic Patients Organization, VKS, uh, we recognize the importance of the website and VKS will also um, maintain the hosting in the, in the future. And we continuously would like to improve the website. First of all, with the invitation to the metabolic centers to add their contact uh, details and make their patients familiar with, with the website. But also we believe that, that the emergency letters and the continuous documentation can improve the family-centered care. 
uh, if we were able to capture and continuously monitor the data at the sites, at the individual uh, hospitals, for the group of patients, we will also be able to improve the care for disease groups and thereby individual patients with these uh, diseases. I, I mentioned the example of, of MCAT deficient patients who mostly do not need a single acute hospitalization. Regarding the risk of the overtreatment, I think perhaps as a group, we sometimes hospitalize our patients too early. But on the other hand, this topic concerns prevention and we need to act before it is too late. There is a certain lead time in between the average moment of early detection and the average moment of doctor visits with symptoms and signs. And it's important to prevent any unnecessary patient delay in this time. And I think this project can be a wonderful step towards uh, better um, communication materials for, for patients to add languages, to add perhaps also uh, new disorders. Perhaps in the future, the, the similar approach uh, may be used for patients with urea cycle defects or organic uh, acidemias. Uh, I think some fatty acid oxidation disorders are still uh, missing, and it, I think it is reasonable also to add the idiopathic ketotic hypoglycemia group. They may also benefit from, from this emergency protocol website. The current diseases on the, that we support with the emergency protocol, we only cover a small part, of course, of uh, metabolic patients. So uh, there are a lot of possibilities, but on the other side, the bigger challenge with initiatives like this is, is keeping it available and keeping it up to date. I think we have a big challenge there too. And it is also what uh, Terry was talking about. The VKS, the patient organization in Holland is also moving forward with this and uh, trying to take care of that. And that way we can guarantee this uh, for a longer time uh, to make it available for patients. It's certainly been very well received and it sounds like it's a fantastic project. It really reflects a very close collaboration between patients, families and clinicians. Is this a good model of working and how do you set priorities for research? Who chooses what you're researching? That's a very good uh, question and uh, it should be something that comes from uh, both the patients and, and the healthcare providers. The research priorities, they were recently set, at least for glycogen storage diseases, in the International Priority Setting Partnership in collaboration with the James Lind Alliance. And that was a very nice collaboration between patients, families and healthcare providers. But in the end, those academical uh, specialists who often already have methods to influence the research agenda, they were not part of the latest or the final prioritization uh, step. So at that step, we were uh, left out and it was completely into the hands of the final group assessing that. And one of the questions was, how should sickness and emergency situations be managed for patients with liver GSD? That was one of the priorities. I think this is a very nice model of, of setting research priorities and similar approaches could be applied for uh, setting priorities in healthcare organization. And one of the models in which we are more and more organizing our healthcare, uh, also for rare diseases, is value-based healthcare. And value means, of course, value for patients. And I think if you communicate on a regular basis with the patient representatives, it will become obvious that it is not only a matter of providing value for the individual patients, 
but it is also really true that the patients represent value for the academia, for the training, and for other patients again. Marta or Enrique, I don't know if you've got a perspective on kind of research priorities or, or how much the fundraising you do is sort of put towards research. Well, we, we feel really lucky that we have had the opportunity to contribute to this project. And we are really grateful that uh, really Dr. Dirks and his team, I mean, they they apply the, let's say, the centrality of the patient approach. No? And even when we had the hospital stay with Nina in Groningen, we really felt that we were included, that our view was considered and taken into account to, to decide the, the next steps. So in that regard, we hope that uh, more and more professionals will follow the same approach. And it's important, I mean, not only for us, but I would say for, for all the, the patients, you know, to be listened to and, yeah, and to see really very good results that improve our quality of life. Yeah. Excellent. It sounds like a fantastic initiative. It's already become very popular. I'm sure it's gonna, going to stay very popular. Uh, if you want to know more, then obviously you can read Terry's paper on the journal website by going online and searching for emergency protocol, or you can go to the emergency protocol website at www.emergencyprotocol.net. And I believe there are videos there showing you just how easy it is to create your own emergency protocol letter. Uh, Terry, Sebastian, Marta and Enrique, uh, thank you all for your time and for coming together across two continents <laughs> to make this possible. Thanks. Thank you so much to everybody. Thank you very much. Thanks, James. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you found it useful, then please tell your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe or follow us to never miss an episode. Until next time, goodbye.